Welcome to a special election episode of Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. In our special episodes, we are talking to candidates for statewide office. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with our chief political writer, Seth Richardson, who will be conducting this interview. And today we are talking with Matt Dolan, a Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate in Ohio. Welcome, Matt Dolan. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Seth. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I, I do want to say thank you for doing this. We reached out to all of the uh, Senate Republican candidates and the rest of them either declined or just simply didn't respond to the request. So uh, once again, want to say, hey, we do appreciate you coming on. But let's go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, obviously, one of the biggest issues right now is inflation. And we want to know what you think the government should do to curb inflation. Well, I'm, first of all, too, I'm happy to be on because I'm running to be a public servant and my uh, statements and what I believe in should be known to the public. So it's disappointing that I'm the only one. So the first thing you have to do as a public official is you have to identify and acknowledge the problem. And what bothered me was in President Biden's State of the Union, over an hour he spoke and never once talked about uh, the high costs that people are facing across the country, including here in Ohio. So you have to recognize that people are suffering. It costs more to go to the grocery store. It costs more to get services. It costs more to pump, uh, fill your gas tank. So uh, initially, let's talk about the gas tank. On day one, President Biden's made some decisions that interfered with the supply side of the oil and gas industry, specifically the oil and gas industry creation here in the United States. But of course, the demand side didn't go away. So that immediately set the ball rolling towards, inf towards inflation. Uh, and of course, to rectify that, he is not still not telling America, let's, f let's get back to energy independence. He's going to Venezuela. He's going to Iran. He's, for a while, he was still working with Russia and OPEC. So he's trying to, to increase the supply side, but he's really hurting American jobs, Ohio jobs and America's independence, the ability to not be dependent on anyone else for the all crucial energy and oil. So that's number one. Number two is we have to decide what is necessary government spending and what is unnecessary government spending. And the Biden administration has spent a lot of time, what I would say, on unnecessary government spending, flooding the uh, nation with cash, but while at the same time disincentivizing folks to go to work, uh, providing, not dealing with the supply side, not getting goods and services moving, not dealing enough with the supply chain, not engaging enough with a new economic allies, so we're not relate, we're not dependent on China uh, for their goods and the, and the costs that they uh, they have to do to have with us. So, federal government needs to play a significant role. Stop providing direct money to individuals without tying it to a job. And let me give you an example of the difference between how the Democrats approach it and how I would approach it and have approached it as a Republican. The Democrats in Washington want to provide the child tax credit. Well, of course, daycare is an important part of our, our economy. We need folks to get back into work and they need to know that their child children are safe during the day. Federal government says, here's a check. It does not require you to get a job. It doesn't even require you to pay that to daycare. 
It just provides you the dollar on the assumption that that money is going to be used for daycare. How did we do it as Republicans? We set aside $50 million in the budget. And we said, once you get a job and you're below a certain level of poverty, and that depends on the number of children you have, then we, you can apply for a grant to help assist paying for daycare, and the money goes directly to the daycare. So the provider gets their money, the individual gets their job, and the children get daycare. That's how you solve a problem without, infl without putting more money into the, the system and not creating disincentives for people to get to work. We want people to get back to work. So um, if you could clarify for me, you think the child tax credit is a, a net negative in the way that it is currently structured? I think the issue is important. So let's, let's be clear here. I think the issue of daycare as being a part of getting people back to work is important. I do not think providing a direct check on a monthly basis to individuals with no ties or responsibilities to show that that money actually got spent on daycare, that, that because you got that money, you were able to take a job. That's my problem with how the Democrats and the federal government are approaching this problem. I prefer to address the problem by requiring people to get to work and then we'll help with your daycare because we know how important that is. But can it be argued that it might be difficult for people to get a job if they can't go out and interview or look for a job because they're at home taking care of their children? Well, I mean, you can make arguments or excuses all you want. Um, I, there are employers throughout this state who are desperate for workers, whether it be hourly workers, salary workers, skilled workers, unskilled workers. Um, they will bend over backwards to accommodate employees uh, to get a job. So I, I, so I do not think that is a valid excuse right now. Um, you, can, you can do it by Zoom. You can bring your children to, to the interview. Uh, they're starving for workers. So we got to create an attitude that, you know, your job is waiting for you. You just got to want it. And we can't disincentivize it. Um, how long do you think that someone should have to have a job before they qualify for the child tax credit? Well, the child care needs are right away. Get a job, and as long as you maintain that job, the, and under the state program, we will provide uh, assistance for your your daycare. The, well, is it, is it upon hiring, or is it, hey, you have a job for a month now, you qualify? How, how do you think that should I, work? I, you know, so I, I believe it's through, it's through uh, uh, Jobs and Family Services, but I, I believe it's upon hiring. Just, just show that you have a, a job. Okay. Um, yeah, I want to move on. You said something at the debate the other night that I thought was interesting. Um, you said you agreed with Rick Scott's plan. He has this kind of proposed agenda for the Republican Party. You know, one of the proposals in there uh, would, you know, would it lead to an increase in taxes on low and middle income Americans? Do you agree with that part of the plan? So let, let me be clear here. What I agreed with Rick Scott was, was finally as a Republican putting forth talking points and agenda discussion items that we could go to Washington and discuss. So I didn't make any comments about the individual platforms inside of his plan, but I was excited and, and thanked him for at least having a discussion. And as the end of my answer said, look, I will go to Washington, I will discuss and engage, uh, and then decide what's in the best interest of Ohio after talking to Ohioans. So no, I have no intentions of going to Washington to raise 
uh, individuals' taxes. I have no intention to raise corporate taxes. In fact, I believe if you, if you are lowering taxes, you're actually incentivizing uh, economic growth. So what I praised was let's start talking and engaging and getting process back into Washington, have a full discussion on issues that matter, uh, and, and that's what I want to focus on. So what parts of the plan do you like and what parts of the plan do you not like? Again, I, I think by saying I, I like that, that we're going to have a discussion. I like that we're going to bring witnesses forward and discuss the pros and cons of each one of those platforms. I, I, I guess this all or nothing world where I have to decide, oh, I agree with this or I don't agree with that. This is the beginning process. So we, we got to have a full discussion. That's what we've been missing in Washington is having a open and transparent process upon which Americans, you know, in my case, Ohioans, can look to me and say, hey, look, I like the direction the Republicans are taking this issue on X, whether it be taxes, whether it be security, uh, whether it be uh, gas and energy. That's what we got to get back to, and that's what I'm excited about. So uh, I'm not going to say, oh, this is right and this is wrong now. It's just the very beginning of, of what is normally a legislative process. Well, but before the legislative process comes this discussion, like you said, and I think that's what we're trying to do here on this podcast is get some sort of idea of what part of this plan do you, do you like, do you not like? So I'm not going to speak directly to the plan, but I'll speak to, so as I said before, I believe we need to lower taxes. I think we need to lower the corporate tax rate, international corporate tax rate. I think that is a tremendous disincentive for people to come here uh, and bring their jobs back uh, into the United States. And I think that is going to be essential for our, our, our economy. I think we need to be strong and stand up to China. I think we need to have border security. And I think you just need to go around the state and talk to any law enforcement officer. And they'll tell you that 2021 was an historic year in terms of the number of uh, drug overdose, drug seizures, and the amount, just the amount of meth and um, fentanyl that's arriving into Ohio. And we, we kind of know it's originating in China and it's coming through the southern border. So, yeah, I want to have a discussion on the southern border. I mean, th th we have to have a discussion on uh, our deficit. We're, we're over $30 trillion. It's 91000 a person. So we need to have an open process and discuss where, where is government spending our money efficiently and effectively? Where are we not? Where can we make uh, cuts uh, that, that won't hurt the uh, genuine services? Look, the four main areas are, are, are uh, Social Security, military, Medicaid, and Medicare. Two of those, let's be clear, are not entitlements. Medicare and, and Social Security, people have earned that. They've paid into it. So we have to address that, make sure people know that. But it doesn't mean it's efficiently and effectively administered. Same with, with uh, the, the, uh, um, the um, defense budget. I am all for a strong national security. I am all for supporting our military. I also am all for having a transparent and open hearing on it to see where are we efficient? Are we spending our money wisely? Are we, are we strong with cyber security? Are we strong with cyber attacks? If, if that's the way the warfare is going, are we funding what is necessary to meet the challenges of tomorrow? And on Medicaid, Look, Medicaid is a 100% rulemaking from the federal government and 100% administer and execution by the state government. And I think that that has to shift a little bit. I think we have to leave the states a lot more flexibility on how they implement Medicaid within each state 
because I know from my experience in Ohio, when we were able to make a little more rules different from what the federal government demanded upon us and got waivers, we were way more efficient and effective in delivering Medicaid without interrupting services, but at a, at a much, much lower cost than what the rules of the federal government. So those are just t t examples which we have to have discussions on. You know, some of the big economic news in Ohio in the past uh, couple months has been, you know, Intel coming to the state, right? Uh, and I want to know, would you vote for the CHIPS Act if you were elected? Or would you have voted for it? Well, um, I, I support the CHIPS Act that Mark Rubio put together. I've, I do not like what the House has done with it. And again, and that goes back to process. We get an idea that works. Um, and the Senate passed them a relatively clean bill. And instead of having a discussion on that bill, uh, having hearings on that bill, and then working out any differences on that issue in conference, the Democrats loaded that bill up with all kinds of other stuff unrelated to what the CHIPS Act is intending to do. Um, and it, we got nowhere. Nothing ever got done. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that is an essential area in which the United States needs to become a leader in uh, and become completely less reliant on uh, China for this type of manufacturing uh, and this type of technology. I, you know, I'm a I'm a younger person here, right? I'm 32. I've got student loan debt. Um, I'm sure you know people who have it as well. And you know, it's been kind of mounting for a while now. And I want to know what you uh, would propose to do about mounting student loan debt or any kind of uh, relief for people well let's let's deal with the problem going forward before we decide to, to to get rid of everyone's debt now and what i mean by that is what we've done in ohio is what i think washington needs to have a, a bigger say in and that is not every child needs to go on to college but that does not mean that not going to college is somehow a lesser step or it's a plan b we need to provide e equal opportunity for any child in Ohio, in the United States, to get a, a good life-sustaining job, whether it be manufacturing, whether it be skilled trades, whether it be just certificates, which, which is what the health care relies upon. People who get unique certificates that don't require a two- or four-year degree that they're greatly lacking right now. So providing the avenue so that the only choice is I either have to go to college or nothing, that, that's got to go. Now, how can I help as a U.S. Senator? I think I've done a good job as Ohio Senator. I think the initial thing I can do is expand the application of Pell Grants. Pell Grants right now are being used by college students, either two or four year degrees, that allow them to use these dollars for, for expenses other than tuition. So think room and board, think tra transportation. So it helps them you know, round out their financial needs as they enter into college. Well, let's go back to skilled manufacturing or skilled trades. Let's say a young man or woman wants to go into welding right out of high school. And when they sign up, they're going to learn, well, there's a cost for the class. And then there's also a supply fee. And I happen to know in welding, the supply fee is $660. Well, for some, that $660 might as well be $600,000 because there's no way they're going to be able to come up with that money. So the Pell Grant should be able to be used so students who, who see an avenue for success for them other than two- and four-year degree don't have financial roadblocks put right in front of them that they have no avenue or choice 
uh, to, go, to go with. Now, IMAP in Ohio, you know, not to confuse him, but an IMAP in Ohio will help that student pay for the tuition or the cost of the, of the welding class. But it doesn't help with the, with the, the other issues, so the supplies. You have to buy a helmet. You have to have steel toe boots. You have to have special clothing. You know, that's where the Pell Grant could be helpful. Now, as it relates to, to students with debt today, look, you know, I, 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 I am not in favor of just erasing all the debt. Um, I, 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 I realize how difficult it is. Um, uh, my wife has been, you know, she recently paid off all her school, school debt, so I know, uh, you know, what it means to your bank account. Um, but I also believe that the incentive um, to keep working, the incentive uh, to pay off your debts remains, and when that incentive goes away, I, you know, I think some folks figure out how they can make it work without getting back into the workforce. Um, so, you know, what, what I want to stop is students with student debt who do not have a degree because they never should have walked through those doors anyway. But the only reason they did is because the only monies available for a future career were if you took the two and four year route. But is there any reform to be had for people who currently do have debt? Because we've seen the cost of education skyrocket over the past two decades. Well, okay, those are two different issues. Yeah, at the state level, we are very much looking into the cost of education and what the, what the universities are doing and not doing to help lower costs. Um, but, but again, you know, th th we have more open jobs in Ohio than we do have people on unemployment. That means people aren't looking for work. And uh, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, if we're going to reform it, I think maybe one of the requirements to, to look at, again, I'm not, I'm not advocating, I'm just, I'm just throwing out ideas here, but you got to be working. If you want relief from your debt, you should be working. It, we just can't just blanket and say, okay, now you, any incentive you have to work is gone. Now you're getting money for, for child care that we don't know that you're using for child care. Now uh, an incentive to pay off your debt is gone. So now that's, that's, that's no longer pressing you to get a job. So we've got to recognize that the incentive to work has to return, and I'm not sure it's there. So, you know, Ukraine has also been in the news and obviously, and uh, everybody seems to talk about it from the defense side, but I want to know, should Ohio accept refugees from Ukraine? So let me address the Ukraine uh, in a little different way before I get to that question, because I know the audience in northeastern Ohio, there's a, there's a heavy Ukraine community, which I serve and have worked with. And it cannot be underscored that one of my opponents went on national TV or national radio and says, I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or another. And th that statement only emboldens tyrants like Putin. That statement only recognizes, he's, he went on further to say, well, we got to take care of our crisis at home. Well, part of the federal government's job is to protect national security, and you don't get to choose. It's not an either-or proposition. And you need to rise to the occasion and be able to protect individuals. And what's happening in the Ukraine is in our national security. It's also in our economic uh, and financial security. Uh, if you talk to any farmers, not only are they facing inflation, but because of some of the products that come out of that region of the world, it's going to cost them e even more dollars. So the answer is, 
Yes, I do think we should take uh, Ukrainian refugees, assuming they are fully vetted, and it's not just an it's not just an avenue for others who who are taking advantage of it to get into uh, our country. But yeah, we need to. Sh it is a shared responsibility. We need to provide humanitarian aid and military aid, and we need to be locked step arms with NATO. And how do we tell Poland, how do we tell other Slavic nations to take Ukrainian refugees if we're saying we're not even going to take any of our own? And of course, once there is a welcoming community here in Ohio um, where um, they would find friends and families and relatives and, and assimilate into our country and get, get working. But yeah, we, we, I, I have no problem with that, but they must be fully vetted. Now, should there be any caps on the number of Ukrainian refugees that either Ohio or the United States accepts? Yeah, I mean, I think initially, yeah. I, I mean, I think 100,000 to start off with, make sure the system we have in place to accept them is working, making sure we know who, who they are, uh, making sure that they do have, a, 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 you know, if possible, a, a landing spot in the nation um, where they can become part of, of our society very quickly uh, and be productive. So, uh, yeah, I don't I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think 100,000 to start is probably a good number. So we're kind of on the tail end, hopefully, of the coronavirus pandemic, right? It's been a very tough couple of years. And I want to know, as a lawmaker, what did you learn from the coronavirus pandemic? So, I mean, I, you learn that when a crisis hits, you, there is so much you don't realize what you do not know. Uh, and so uh, calm, reflective uh, response to, to, to the virus um, was necessary. And I, I think decisions were made that in a, in a vacuum, knowing what we didn't know at the time, I think were probably the right decisions to make. Um, but as we learn more and more uh, information, um, then I think probably should have moved a little quicker in, in, in some of the relief of, of some of these uh, mandates. But, you, I mean, what I learned as a lawmaker is you don't politicize a crisis. Um, people are hurting. People are scared. You, you, they don't know what tomorrow means. Um, and until we do, we have to make sure that we're acting in, their, in everyone's best interest, be informative, be as transparent a, as you can, if you make a mistake, admit the, the mistake that, you know, based on the information I knew now, that's why I made this decision. I wouldn't have made it if I had known the decisions I know now. Be open and on, honest uh, with individuals. Um, you know, I, if, you know I, I volunteer all the time. I say it on the campaign trail. Do I agree with everything Governor DeWine did during the pandemic? No. Do I understand why he did it? Most of it I do. Most of it I do. I had no idea why he did the 10 o'clock curfew. He couldn't explain it to me. Um, he did that completely on his own, uh, but most everything else, there was some rationale that you could understand. Even if you didn't agree, you could understand. Are you at all surprised at how much division it caused, not necessarily even between, you know, Republicans or Democrats or however you want to describe it, but, um, really even thinking within your own party, are, are you surprised at all about the divisions that the pandemic caused? Well, again, uh, I mean, I'm, I don't know whether surprise is, is the right word. I mean, there, there, there were a lot of difficult decisions that had to be made. And you can't dismiss someone who's saying 
my individual rights are extremely important to me. I mean, that, that is not something that you dismiss. Um, and so when, when, they, when, if, when that argument is dismissed by some, uh, that creates rancor, that creates anger. So you, you've, you've got to recognize that how people approach these problems, that's how they're approaching it. That's what's important to them. So we have to balance. Okay, I want your, I mean, look, I am all for individual liberty. I do not like the government telling me what I can and cannot do. But if we're not communicating with each other as to, I respect your, both of your positions, and I'm not trying to take away individual liberties, and on the other side, there is a responsibility to protect the health and welfare of all the citizens. I, I, what, I, what I believed happened was it became an either or. And that's not right. That, that's not right. The, the, the liberties that we enjoy as Americans need to be protected at all times. Clouded that now with we also have responsibility as government officials to protect the health and welfare of our citizens. That could have been shared, a shared burden and, and understanding should have been better, and that would have helped uh, deflate some of the rancor. Matt, this is Chris. Let me ask you a question that's coming from a little bit of a different direction. I hear from a lot of people, including a lot of Republicans in Northeast Ohio, who are, who are afraid that you're not going to win, that they, they see you as the one person in this race that is sane and, and has true conservative values and is not out just begging for endorsements of others. And when you first announced, they were pretty excited because they could see a path where you were the guy standing apart from all of that and that while they're all running around dividing up the, the, the votes they're chasing, that you would be the one that appeals to people that are looking for basic conservative values. But they're worried now that you haven't done enough to set yourself apart and fear that you're not getting traction. What, what message do you have for them? Well, I think they're wrong in terms of us not getting traction. Um, I think the uh, campaign has evolved exactly um, how I thought it would. I think there is a, a great distinction between me and the rest of my opponents. I am the only one in this race talking about Ohio, talking about the issues that impact Ohio. I went on a listening tour before I got in the race because these are jobs in which you're going to go to Washington to represent a state. I wanted to know what the state wanted to hear. They wanted to talk about economics. They wanted to talk about security, whether it be border, whether it be neighborhood, and all the economic issues that were facing them. My opponents are not doing that. My opponents are running a campaign on one political motive, and that is to get the endorsement uh, of Donald Trump. So when they had an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm going to stand up for Ohio. I'm going to, I'm going to recognize down in Cincinnati that Republicans and Democrats have been talking for years about fixing the Brent Spence Bridge because of how important it is to our economy. President, on the, on the eve of the vote in the United States Senate that would have helped all of Ohio, President Trump says, I'm not supporting any candidate, any candidate, Who's going to come out and support that bill? They didn't come out and support that bill. Now, now, now they're doing verbal gymnastics to say, well, I really am for infrastructure, but somehow this bill was bad when it didn't raise your taxes and it didn't add to the national debt. But, the, my, but my question is, I, I, I'm granting all of that. But, my well, question you, but is, Chris, you, you did say I, didn't, I haven't done a distinction. I was getting to viability. But there is a tremendous distinction now 
between me and all of my opponents. And you think people are hearing that message? So, uh, yeah. I mean, our responsibility, of course, as a campaign is to have the right messenger, have the right message, and have the not enough, enough resources to get that out. Um, we were the last group to go up on television. I didn't start advertising on paid, paid advertising until January 19th. Compare that to Mike Gibbons, August. Jane Timken, October. Uh, Josh Mandel, October. Um, and I think uh, J.D. Vance, well, I don't, J.D. Vance has not done anything on his own. Peter Thiel has started advertising for him in November. So our message, we didn't start until January. We have an abundant buy all the way through May 3rd, which we now believe May 3rd will be the election day. Um, I have been all over the state. I have talked to very conservative groups. And when I walk out of that room, you know, I don't, I don't win the whole room for certain. But I win a big part of that room or enough part of that room where they're saying, you know what, you're right. I, I think we do need to focus more on looking forward, on taking on the Biden administration, uh, on setting an agenda for 24. Um, so, yeah, Chris, I, I, you know, the, the polls, if you want to talk polls, you know, we didn't share our in, internal poll. Um, we're very comfortable with what our internal poll showed. But let's talk about the national polls, the two that came out. Um, what it showed is that, you know, don't hold me to the exact number, but I believe it's 68% of the voters who chose Gibbons or Mandel are willing to switch off of them. And it was something like 80-some percent of those who said they're going to vote for me will not switch off of anyone else. So the winner in the polls right now is the undecided voter. If you look at what the undecided voter wants, they want somebody who's talking like, like I am. And, and the support of the two people perceived to be in the lead is very, very soft. Um, so this campaign was back, put together to execute to peak at the right time. And the right time, of course, is when people actually go to vote. Uh, and uh, I think you're going to see that. So okay. encourage, I encourage all those folks who are listening who believe in me. Well, the best way you can exercise that belief is go out and vote for me. Get your neighbors to vote for me. We can get this done. Well, I'm glad you brought up resources and going on TV because it you know, segs into my next question very well. You know, you're self-funding your campaign to a larger degree than any other candidate uh, currently at the moment. We'll see what the next uh, fundraising report says. Uh, but you, obviously, you're not the only candidate who is self-funding to the tune of millions of dollars apiece, right? Uh, do, you, do you think it's healthy when personal loans and contributions, and not necessarily just for yourself, but for the primary as a whole, are outpacing individual contributions in a political race? And, and what do you think this sort of says about uh, you know, maybe politics in general or this race specifically? So there, there's a lot packed into that question, Seth. So let me just try to deal with them one at a time. So, hmm. um, look, this is a multi-person, open Republican Party for the U.S. Senate. Um, you know, and it's unclear who the winner is going to be. So you might expect that donors are going to be sitting on their hands a little bit, um, not not 100% uh, certain who they're going to engage with, and so they're sitting out the primary. Um, I'm going to win this race because I know I'm the right person at the right time for this job. I have the right message. I have the right uh, results, conservative results. I have the right experience. That doesn't matter if the Voters in the Ohio Republican Party don't know that. So what makes me different than anyone else in this race is they're all self-funding in some form or fashion. 
Um, I'm the only one with a public service record that you can look at and point to and say, okay, does this guy have a, a, a tendency to vote special interest? Is this guy, is he just lockstep with his party and doesn't do, you know, just does what the donors tell him to do? Um, the, the, I have a variety of votes, some of which I know this, uh, your paper agrees with and some of which they did not. Um, my motive in self-funding was recognizing the reality of this race, that if I want to win and I want to represent Ohio to do what I believe is right for Ohio, I needed, my wife and I needed to invest in me. Uh, and that's the decision that we made. I got in the race late. I was doing the people's business in Columbus. Um, I wasn't out fundraising. So I made a decision to, for me to be effective, to me to be viable in this race. I needed to invest in myself, and that's what I did. But I think the question is more about do you think that this is healthy for the political process to essentially have uh, people just injecting millions of their own dollars into a race, um, like I said, outpacing either small-dollar contributions or max contributions? Well, again, um, whether it's healthy or not, you have to look to the individual. What are the motives of an individual who's, who's self-funding? Is it, is it for self-promotion? Uh, is it just so they can have a job? Is it they just like the title and they have the money? Is it just something they're doing for a bucket list? Uh, they have no other uh, avenues to go? Look, I mean, it, it, in, a, in, a, in a different world, if somebody could have gotten this race and they could have been fundraising for, for years. The, the issue, of course, is Rob Portman surprised everyone. So uh, I, I think this race is unique because of that, that no one was planning to run uh, for the U.S. Senate in 2022 on the Republican side. And now all of a sudden the window of opportunity to present your case to the Ohio Republicans got really, really tight. And for me, it was even tighter because I was doing the people's work first. Um, so I think I don't think you can say, OK, this is unique to every other or uh, this is indicative of every other race. I, I think given the circumstances here, but whether it's healthy or not is what the motive of the individual who is self-funding is. Uh, and I feel very comfortable that, you know, I know why I am in this race, uh, because I want to go represent the people of Ohio. I want to stop the Biden administration. And I believe the same results that I've been able to get for Ohio, I can bring to Washington. The process can return, perhaps even civility, but, but disagreement can occur, uh, and we'll get our country on track. Well, good luck with civility. We'll have to leave it there. We want to thank Matt Dolan for participating in this special episode of Today in Ohio. Come back and listen to our regular episodes each day when we are talking about the news. Thank you very much, Matt Dolan. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Seth.